to the Eco Interviews. This is a place where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. In this episode, I'm chatting with bird expert April Harper. April has been working in the field of environmental science and education for a decade and is passionate about conserving and properly managing all wildlife, but none more so than birds. She doesn't call herself an ornithologist as her current career doesn't involve the study of birds. However, her experiences banding, surveying, volunteering at wildlife rescue centers, training birds of prey for educational programming, and overall obsession with our feathered friends makes her quite well versed on the subject of human-bird interactions and relationships. I reached out to April via Instagram after seeing a post about feeding geese at the park. Maybe we all grew up feeding the ducks and geese, but it turns out a diet full of white bread isn't exactly what these birds need to survive and thrive. Then I started thinking about all the other animal-human interactions we have and how they may have an unintentional negative effect on the creatures we see around us. April breaks it down for us how we can safely interact with birds and some amazing bird facts. Ever since our chat, I've been keeping an eye out for the birds in my yard and trying to learn their calls as well. We're releasing this episode right before a big bird event, the October Big Day happening on October 17th and 18th. I hope this conversation sparks your interest to get involved and appreciate even more the amazing creatures we have around us. Welcome to the Eco Interviews, April Harper. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing wonderful. So glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. April. I know April because she's a fellow triathlete. She competed in the World Championships last year in Lausanne with me. And um, But besides being a triathlete, she's also um, a bird expert. And I love watching her on Instagram with these birds. I'm very jealous she could pick up chickens, and I still have not been able to do that myself. But uh, you do much more than that. So please, April, introduce yourself and uh, tell us a bit about your work. Absolutely. Um, So I am in the field of environmental education, and I find my story of how I got there just a little interesting. So I started with field research, and um, I was actually doing sea turtle research in Florida, marine laboratory, and I kind of had this aha moment before grad school, before I applied to grad school, of the connection of how many people are curious about wildlife, but just don't have knowledge base or um, the proper tools of like, okay, who's going to teach me things? So I love being out in the field and just talking to folks as they saw me doing something kind of interesting and cool. And they were like, oh, but why? And so I kind of fell found my way into public affairs. And as an educator, I feel like a biologist slash liaison. Um, and that's kind of, kind of been my work lately. I stay in the field. I try to do volunteer work within wildlife, um, wildlife biology in terms of field work and data gathering, but largely I am teaching kiddos and then general audiences. Um, and so that's kind of, kind of bridging the gap, the gaps that we lack in understanding with our connectedness to wildlife. Yeah, and uh, we have more and more wildlife encounters as people, and part of that is uh, is development, residential or commercial, or you know we're unfortunately destroying habitats. Um, and some of these encounters we kind of know to watch out for. You know, don't feed the bears. I see my friends hiking always have you know bear precaution, and uh, myself in our neighborhood we we have more and more coyotes coming in, and so people know to stay away from them. But then there's like the less threatening wildlife that we hear about, like feeding ducks at the park or um, feeding the squirrels. Can you talk to us about this human-wildlife interaction and, and when it's appropriate and then what, what areas do we need to maybe reevaluate what we're doing when it comes to interacting with wildlife? Absolutely. And this is so hard. I mean, I fed ducks when I was growing up and as an animal lover, it, I feel like those are the moments that kind of like spark some interest for people. Um, but they're definitely precautions. Um, I really like that you brought up bears because although this is not birds, there's a really interesting study. I'll try to find it for you um, out of Alaska. And it was comparing like, okay, at what times of year are we seeing spikes in like 
human bear conflicts. Um, and it is the time when they are going through hyperphagia, which is the, they're getting ready for hibernation. They're like trying to really fatten up. So they're like hungry and going for it. Um, and then, you know, if there's fewer fish, they get hangry. And so like we have conflicts with people kind of just because they're hangry <laughs> um, and everyone's all around the food. And so that transfers to even with the smaller things that we find less threatening, um, like smaller songbirds, which aren't usually that aggressive. They're pretty tiny. But geese, I mean, how often do we hear about conflicts with geese? It's like the animal we love to hate and <laughs> to feed. Um, so aggression definitely can occur when we're feeding wildlife. There is the expectation of food. And then without food, we see the aggression, um, which I think is also true of toddlers. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's one is just watching out for the aggressive interactions because at the end of the day, when there's a wildlife human conflict, the human tends to win. If there's an aggression, usually that animal is then going to be challenged to keep surviving because humans have now said, Oh, nope, you're a problem. Even when we create the problem, um, I kind of talk about it as like a feedback loop, right? So we're just drawing them in and keeping the pattern going. Um, other concerns, cause there's a litany and you stop me at any point <laughs> cause I can go on, um, are like the desensitization, right? So just the getting used to, so even if you're not aggressive, being in close proximity, means you're getting kind of used to this not being a potential danger. And where Fiona, I don't think you're a danger and I don't think most people are a danger, but then you do come across some people who aren't as friendly. So keeping animals with that sense of humans are a potential predator keeps them safer and potentially keeps them further away from residences, which are just the, it, it, the list goes on and on of how like bring in closer to people, other things can happen. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then of course, I think, I think we're going to talk about migration. So there's delayed migration for some bird species. Um, populations of Canada geese have simply abandoned migration. I mean, we made these perfect lawns as smorgasbords for them. We feed them. Why would they go anywhere? Mm-hmm. And then there are other implications to like, okay, why is it bad for the geese to stay all year round? Why is it bad for any bird to stay all year round? And there are definitely some issues there. Um, and gosh, since we are talking about geese, that's how we found each other in this yeah. situation, right? Um, unhealthy diets. So bread is not very high in protein and has very low essential vitamins that this wildlife needs. And so even cracked corn. So I remember <laughs> I was kind of on Instagram being like, y'all, this is bad. Let's not have these pictures and encouraging people to feed geese for all these reasons. And they were like, oh no, but it's cracked corn. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Um, I have been in positions of training wildlife for educational programs. And we use cracked corn as a treat. It okay. is like you would not give your kids a Twinkie all day. You might give it to them as a reward. Hopefully mm -hmm. not doing Twinkies all day, but you know, your business. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like that. Like it's still low protein, still low in nutrients. And then there are all sorts of um, health conditions that can come from that. For waterfowl, it's commonly um, um, angel wings. So when you see the birds with their like little wings, poked out and they're kind of side sideways, that's a bone deficiency that they're having. So they've lost enough minerals from being fed too much of the wrong food or access to the wrong food. And they end up with these deformities that can then prevent them from flying. Um, and so that's not good. And I even, I even know like some birds are prone to fatty liver disease when they have too much of a seed based diet. So even if in your feeder, in your backyard, you are doing lots of sunflower seeds all year round, lots of like peanuts all year round. That's a really high fat diet that can cause birds to develop fatty liver disease. Wow. 
It's yeah. pretty wild. I I know similarly with like um with like our pets, our companion animals, dogs that they have an increase in cancer and fatty liver disease be- because not only are humans not really doing great with their diet overall with our Western diet, very focused on high you know fat, carb, sugar. Blah. The dog is is playing down to the dogs. They're having the same issues we are. Obviously, is playing out to the birds. Um, is yeah the uh, I w- I went to a farm and they had a certain type of chicken and she was talking about how they really had to watch what they fed them because those chickens would just eat themselves into like diabetes like they had no control and you had to be really you know careful with their diet and then geese as well I think is a great example at least where I live um, we have more and more development similar in other areas and they tend to be places where the geese would actually stop on their migration and now we're in an office building and people are like, what are these geese doing here? And I'm like, well, for the past 40 years, there was nothing here. So, you know, it's, it's a shame that they see them as a nuisance and like almost like, oh, stupid geese. And it's like, but come on, guys, like they were here. They're going to keep stopping here. So ugh, what other are any other threats due to human activity and development that we're missing here when it comes to wildlife? Oh, well, girl, um, and I did want to touch on my dad has feeders. I have had feeders in the past. So I, and I love birds. Birds are fabulous. I want to see them. They're great. Um, and I think it's just being mindful of our choice. Again, songbirds are pretty flighty. I mean, you're talking like the tiny guys that are on the bottom of the food chain and are less likely to be desensitized to humans and act aggressively to humans. We are just way too big. Um, geese on the other hand are pretty big and Mm -hmm. they, they can do some damage if they really want to. Um, so I just, I like to encourage people to be mindful and watch for, watch for patterns. Um, you know, when you gather animals together and it's just like humans, we're in a pandemic, we are not gathering together to not spread sickness. But if you have this food source and you start to see sick birds, a lot of times that's like showing in feathers, um, loss of feathers, then that might be time to take your feeder down so that you're not having a hot spot of disease transmission. Um, Also population sinks. When you have one source that you're bringing all these animals to, and then a predator is around, so say a natural predator, um, I'll say, or native predator, predator is what I'll say in terms of hawks. If you have a hawk that is picking off birds off your feeder left and right, you might want to give your songbirds a better chance and remove your feeders for a bit. And then there's, there's cats. Mm-hmm. Can we, can we talk about cats? Yeah, let's talk about cats. We have plenty of cats in our neighborhood. We don't, uh, my dogs are not cat friendly, so we do not have any cats, but we have a stray cat problem in our neighborhood for sure. So tell us about cats. Cats are the best hunters. I think there ever were. Um, they are, I love, there's this book um, by Alan Wiseman called The World Without Us. And he has a whole chapter on domesticated animals and like the studies done that like cats aren't domesticated. <laughs> and if humans were wiped off existence, they would be just fine. All these other domesticated animals would truly suffer and cats would be like, no, we're good. I can find something. Um, but because they're such good hunters and because they will hunt regardless of if they are well fed. And I think that's common, commonly a misconception that, um, that, you know, my, my cat is well fed. It's not going to go out and try to eat as much. It's just fun for them. They can, so they do. Um, and they are actually responsible for about, it's a little over 60, 60, three-ish, I'm going to just say a little over 60, um, species extinctions, like between birds, rodents, reptiles, amphibians. And it's there in an introduced species, right? Mm -hmm. So we have, we have helped them travel across the globe and we lit them outdoors. And especially islands are the best example where there were no cats and there was no need to be afraid of such a predator because it never existed before, they completely wipe out species. And the simple thing that we can do, if at least we have one that we call ours, is bring them indoors. Okay. Bring your cat indoors. Um, 
And you can also at least help if you know there's a feral cat population, you can, um, what are the words? You can try to help get them spayed and neutered yeah. to bring that population down. Um, but cats are responsible for over, I think, 500 billion bird deaths a year. A year. Oh my a year. It's a lot. It's a lot. It is the number one, we call it an, like anthropogenic, like a human cause because we did help, help them travel the globe, but they're the number one threat to birds and people don't realize it. There are so many threats to birds, but these little fuzzy kitten floofs that we love so much are just, they're just really good at being predators. Wow. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm not, like I said, we don't have cats, but that's super interesting. We used to, as a kid, we had cats and they definitely uh, were good at hunting mice and lizards and maybe a songbird, but wow. Amazing. And and it is like, oh, they're going to bring them home. We're going to know exactly what they kill. Yeah. Sometimes they bring them in, but you know, they're doing their own thing. They're swatting around and playing with it. And it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, I said to my husband, I wasn't going to ask you a personal question, but I am because he was asking about, uh, we have 14 chickens in our yard now and we let them run free in the yard and it's like a a jungle. So I feel like as jungle birds, they have lots of cover and they eat lots of birds. But now my husband's like, what about the songbirds? They don't have the same amount of insects. Do we need to worry about our other birdies in the yard? Other birdies, I might have you're worried about your your birds. No, our chickens are fine. My okay. husband's concerned that the chickens are eating the food, as in the natural food. We don't put out <laughs> feeders. They're eating all the insects that the songbirds used to eat. I I would not stress over that. <laughs> um, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about you know general food chain, um, of course habitat loss does play into the resources that we have. Um, but in general, our insects, most, some of our insects are, are struggling, but our general insect population is doing, doing okay. And I think the thing to consider is probably out of your control is how many people are using pesticides that mm-hmm. aren't actually, you know, targeting specifically what is threatening a crop or whatever. Um, you know, residential landscaping is, is bigger in terms of its impact on the environment than actual agriculture. I mean, there are way more of us doing things to our lawn than there actually are acres of farmland. So although I am for global responsibility, I'm going to advocate for that ever. There's, we have so much power. And what we do. So no, you can pass on. I would not be concerned about your chickens taking <laughs> on too much because chickens are also helping, you know, their, their efforts of like scratching mm-hmm. is, is kind of like helping turn over soil. Like they are playing a beneficial part in your backyard ecosystem. Oh, I love it. I know. I love watching them. Like, I mean, you know, you're, I was never a bird person and getting these birds was like an inheritance from our father-in-law, but oh my God, I could just watch the birds all the time. They're utterly fascinating they're like social uh, hierarchy and what they get up to so I, I love them but i'm glad you brought up like pesticides and herbicides that's like human input that has um has real issue has real issues for the wildlife around us and we did speak to zach steinhauser in a previous episode who's a purple martin expert and he mentioned i love him i follow i follow his work I, oh I- amazing Yes. Amazing. You'll, if you will, if you're in South Carolina to come see the Purple Martins and we'll have to connect. I haven't even had, had a chance to see it myself, but he was talking about their aerial insectivores, which is a cool word to throw out. <laughs> My husband was like, that's not a word. I'm like, it totally is a word. So, you know, they eat the bugs and you mentioned pesticides, herbicides are going to, um, are going to uh, maintain in the food chain and affect the birds. What? Uh, let's talk a little bit about that if you want to, and also climate change and its effects on on birds as well. Absolutely. So, again, I know if our families want to protect ourselves, especially you know the waves of human pathogens. So Zika. I think of Zika and the mass increase in spraying your yard for mosquitoes. And I understand, I, I am very sensitive to our public health 
but I also encourage those that weren't at risk. Like if you're not trying to have kids during that time, which, which was the major concern is like, I am pregnant or I'm trying to have kids. Um, but this is just a good example of what can you do that personally affects you? Like, are you capable of using your own insecticide on your body? Could you plant more lemongrass in your yard? Could watching for water filling. Um, so I'm just pro those actions. Um, in the bigger sense, if we do move on to agriculture, there's definitely a ripple down effect. Um, and it's really hard sometimes to manage those things. There are protections for farmers to be able to utilize these different tools and it's fair. I mean, that is your livelihood. Um, but we as individuals can also seek out organic farmers that are doing their best effort. I am I'm also going to advocate for putting your money where your, your beliefs and hopes are. So, um, yeah, there is definitely the ripple down effect. Um, I think in agriculture, one of the things that is maybe even a bigger concern than like specifically attacking certain insecticides, there is one um, pesticide called um, carbofuran. And it is incredibly deadly and it's actually banned in most of Europe because of how, how bad it is, but farmers still have access to it. And I think a lot of deaths, specific deaths are, are accidental, but there is also an agriculture that I think kind of like trickles down to our, our lives of like the stigma, like poor blackbirds, Mm -hmm. poor crows. They are fascinating creatures that are just wonderful but but some some individuals not all most farmers are great there's always like a bad egg in every every Mm. demographic but um i think there's a lot of stigma that goes into trying to actually maybe purposefully hurt some of these animals but a lot of it is accidental yeah i think um i think it's interesting when we talk about like, you know, there's different standards, say in Europe or other places as to what sort of insecticides and herbicides and pesticides you can use. And I think, uh, you know, I can't, con- like you said, I, I purchase food in uh, from hopefully from farmers that kind of follow along the same ideals that we do. Um, uh, personally, you know, I can choose what I use in my yard, which is nothing. We have no chemicals in our yard and, and it's fine. You know, we have like, we have the scrubby part of the backyard, which all the snakes and the stuff want to stay down there. They're not interested in coming to the house, um, you know, and it, it, you know, it works that way. But I think there's also I think there's a misconception with the general public that if it's on the shelf, it's safe. I have seen people, two instances in particular, someone saying like, isn't it amazing that they invented this herbicide that doesn't, that kills all the bad things, but leaves my grass. And I'm just like, uh, no, you know, it, it literally kills everything except for like this genetically modified grass. You're like killing everything else under it. So like, let's get that straight. And then I saw someone else asking about what can I spray on my anthills that's safe for pets. And I just was like, nothing is safe for pets, period. So, you know, uh, how do we educate, how do, I mean, besides telling consumers like to really educate, educate yourself what can we do even maybe on an advocacy point to like try and get this stuff off the shelf because even in another interview with compost we've had an issue with tainted compost due to uh store-bought um you know herbicides that the landscapers use and then they take the grass clippings to the composter and it's tainted all the compost and ruined crops for the next season yeah um well and in terms of education i mean i i approach you know some people, I mean, I'm not going to say some people don't care, but some people, it's just, it is not the priority to think of the thing other than what they want. Um, you know, one of the tenets of wildlife biology that I learned was like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I even think approaching it from um, a private land standpoint of like, okay, well, what do you consider beautiful in your landscape? So that would be my first step of encouraging if you're having this conversation to say like, oh, well, what is, what is something else you could do to reduce your anthill? And sometimes that's landscaping related. Sometimes it has to do with like, what could you plant that is going to 
manage maybe against animal, um, that certain animal, that ant. So um, like you manage for something, you have to manage against something. So you could manage for maybe a nat- more natural landscape, which, which planting natives, right, is going to provide, if you're concerned that the animals aren't getting enough food, that is a good way to feed animals without making it like a hub and causing like conflict when it's natural. So I think that is one thing just from a compromise and educational standpoint, like that is, that is an easier shift. And then if you want to go to the next level, I mean, I think we already know this, you know, contact your public office, contact your public officials. Um, I, I find that, I mean, it is easy to do the ones that are kind of like, if you have an interest, it's circulating on social media and all you have to do is like click and then like some genius already wrote up something for you and you just have to hit submit. Um, so emails are great. Calling is better, right? Tying your personal story and why you're concerned, make it like a heartstring thing. And then don't, and I see this as well in terms of advocacy, you know, we have our votes, but then once someone is voted into office that maybe we don't share the same ideologies with, we don't bother to contact them because they think they don't care, but they are still your public servant. Mm-hmm. And so, um, stay engaged, stay engaged and challenge people because at the end of the day, they should be listening. And if enough people say it, then, then that is, that is going to invoke some change, maybe not as fast as we'd like, but some change. Mm -hmm. I think that's usually important is something I've tried to do to get more engaged with the local government and our officials. And you're right. Like, Uh, I've heard it echoed through some of our other guests, including the conservation voters of South Carolina, the assumption that if someone who you didn't vote for is in that the the conversation stops, but you're right. It's your elected official. Um, It's you need to hold them accountable. I think that's a huge thing, especially on a local level. A lot of the local officials never get emails, phone calls about anything. So when you do contact them, they don't know what to do, but they almost have uh, a more direct effect on your day-to-day life than someone who's in Washington, D.C. And so I think they're more approachable and able to do things that you want them to do. And, and even just talking about those concerns, when we're talking about products that we want to eventually have at least, you know, more warnings, more obvious, you know, side effects. And I think that that's what you were originally getting at Mm -hmm. is how do we let people know that some of these things aren't safe? Um, So in that conversation, Start bringing those things up before it gets really bad. Like, I mean, DDT is an extreme example, but we had to nearly lose many species and see side effects in people before there was action. And if you have a concern, you can start talking about it now and hopefully, hopefully we address it before, before things get a little worse. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, um, bird migration and some of the things that are affecting it. I've seen uh, articles out talking about climate change, the changing the weather patterns, and some of those weather patterns queue up birds for moving north, south, wherever they need to go. And also, one thing that I sometimes forget, but then it always comes back up, is the use of, well, humans' use of lighting also seems to be an issue. So tell me about that. Absolutely. Um, and I- and I will also pray, so since we kind of started this with feeding and mm-hmm. we talked about delayed migration, I'm going to take just a second to, to advocate for um, when we delay migration. And I think of this as, so we have our geese and that's a whole thing. Um, but hummingbirds are a typical one that we leave our feeders up for a really long time and they sometimes stick around a little longer. And then some of the things that happens when we delay their migration, regardless of what's going on with climate change is that, um, you know, the ones that stick around, they have the first choice of breeding grounds. Mm -hmm. And then we see this ripple effect where maybe the more fit of the species, their genetics aren't getting passed on as well because other, other birds that stayed (laughs) are taking up residence. And then they might've been ones that wouldn't have survived migration. So again, I'm just going to circle back around, like, please be cautious when you feed wildlife. Um, weather, ah, climate change. Um, so we are finding that birds are taking flight sooner with warmer weather. Um, and 
the reasons that is concerning is because, you know, with climate change, weather is tumultuous and we'll have these different waves. So a part of the concern is the trigger happens. And some of the studies I've read say that like by day two, like you have some warm days and it's like on the second day of these higher temperatures with higher barometric pressure. So high barometric pressure is really important for safe travel and flight. And then usually comes with like less um, wind. Um, I don't have words right now. (laughs) (laughs) Less headwind. So higher barometric pressure, rising barometric pressure, you get a little less of the headwinds that are going to make migrating more challenging. So if it's not exactly right and you take off, but then you have these tumultuous winds, then you might need to veer off course. You might just not make it because of a a weather event um, that forces you into a city, which we'll get to lights because that definitely does disturb migration patterns. Um, And then what if you get somewhere and it's just not ready for the food that you're trying to get is not ready for you yet. Or, um, or you end up a place that's too cold and just not ready to sustain your little birdie life. So those are some of the major concerns with like our just general climate change. If you talk specifically about seabirds, all sorts of different other things, um, like ocean acidification, messing with the food chain. Um, so main weather events and then, when we're thinking about climate change. So we're still studying plants and plants being a part of the food source, but plants, although they do shift their blooms with temperature changes, they do have more of a reliance on um, length of day. So there are a lot of plants that really what triggers them is length of day. Mm -hmm. So when these two things aren't lining up, then you're just kind of messing with the food chain food source of when birds are arriving and going um, with some of those moves and during migration and why watching birds for migration is really important is that all of our lights, like you said, um, actually kind of like draw songbirds in. Like it's something that's kind of mesmerizing and it's almost like they get caught and they're like, I don't know where to go. It's, it, they, they end up kind of funneling around our city lights. Um, and the main lights that we're concerned about are upward facing lights, the decorative lights that are really not necessary, but people find aesthetically pleasing when they look at a cityscape. Um, so those can really confuse birds. And if it was just confusing and then, you know, maybe they kind of did escape the light tunnel that's happening and move on, that'd be great, but usually they migrate at night. So then they're kind of stuck during the day because they're not ready to take off during the day to start their migration or continue their migration. And then we have these big buildings and the major, so if cats are our number one bird (laughs) bird killer, building collisions are number two. So we're thinking of window strikes and then even car collisions, but birds are not great at seeing a building reflection and the clouds in the building reflection and not right into it, going right into it. So there is a significant amount of songbird, songbird mortality that occurs just from building strikes. So the light draws them in, they kind of get trapped and then they end up flying into the buildings. Um, And it's just all very depressing. Um, One great example I'll give you. That's a positive story. So, um, the 9-11 memorial lights that they do, um, that was causing one of like thousands of birds in those lights. And of course, you know, it is during fall migration, but they worked with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology to say like, okay, when we see a certain number of birds that are starting to gather, we can turn the lights off for a period of time and then the birds go away. So they became more vigilant And they took a really easy action that is kind of like a compromise, like, okay, we're honoring 9-11 and all those lives lost, but we can still turn them off for a little bit and make sure we're protecting birds. 
Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that it's the upward facing lights. I wasn't aware there was a difference between uh, the upward and then say maybe a street lamp. With Absolutely. And, and that's like a conflict when you bring up lights and turning off lights or um, as a movement to help migratory birds. One of the first things that comes up is safety. Right. Um, and I mean, we're thinking most birds are not traveling for migration at low levels for street lamps. They are up high on waterfowl. We don't see a lot of this as much because waterfowl um, will migrate up to almost 4,000 feet sometimes. They, they're, they're staying pretty clear. Not that they can't get distracted by lights, but they're not getting, at, it's not the same level as many of our songbirds. Um, so yeah, downward facing is just helpful, um, but we can, we can still, like, we can close our blinds at night, mm-hmm. right, um, to help with just kind of like the ambient light source. But really, the biggest factors are those big decorative lights around buildings and things that are facing up, because that's just that, that's what's going to go directly into the sky. Wow. Um, Something that we've also seen, uh, you know, the wildfires out west, uh, uh, there was an article going around about um, birds just dropping out of the sky, and they didn't necessarily directly connect it with the fires. I mean, I think they're researching it. Um, Have you you seen that article? Do you have any thoughts about what's going on there? I mean, absolutely. There are, there are the combinations of things. I think we are in such a time where there's so many factors going on at once, it's hard to isolate a single variable. Um, But I would imagine, um, and from a little bit that I've read, they're trying to figure this out. But yes, smoke, if it's not directly smoke inhalation, which some of it could be. um, And I will say bird systems are extremely sensitive for flight to occur, they have air sacs throughout their body. So that means the things that they breathe in are traveling throughout their body more than you or I or your dog or your cat. Um, so that is of concern of how easily it can go through the body. So I, I think we would be silly not to consider all that, all that smoke inhalation is not a factor, but then it's the habitat loss. This mm-hmm. is the time of year where birds are meant to be fattening up. If they're going to migrate, and some of them have very, very long journeys, they are putting on somewhere between like three to sometimes 10 times their body weight in fat so that they can travel very far. Um, So if you're losing your food sources, maybe you're driving out to more arid or less abundant places in search of food, then you're kind of just stuck and hungry and it's just it's just the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's it's uh, it is it's hard to see those photos. And then like just anecdotally, my husband get gets really concerned about that stuff. And then we were driving, and we had like two birds just fall out of the sky in front of us. And he was like, "See?" And I'm like, "Okay, Lance, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it is quite. I don't. I mean, I ugh, it's not fun to see that for sure. I don't know what's going on, but we need to keep an eye out for sure." Yeah. Um, for We mentioned agricultural practices in terms of the chemicals, but there's also our conventional agriculture's monocropping. How is that having an effect on the birds? And, and this is simple. I, I, someday I am determined in my lifetime, I'm going to be an advocate for switching out um, gen eggs in a university from being like, oh, you can take physics 101 or bio 101 and learn transcription and translation just one more time and be conservation biology. Because I think we just miss these steps, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so simple. Yeah. Low diversity at the bottom of the food chain means low diversity as you get to the top of the food chain. And so that's really, I mean, beyond, beyond um, soil and water care, from certain different agricultural practices. If we're thinking about just the overall diversity that we want to maintain, and birds are such a diverse group of animals. There are about 10,000 species of birds, only about like 5,000 species of mammals. So like so many birds and it's great. And then we think of insects, but if you have one plant, I mean, just, it's not going to be beneficial to multiple species of animals. Um, 
And so that's a, that is a main thing. And, you know, the farm bill, which doesn't get enough credit, it is updated very frequently, like every handful of years and often has these wonderful, you know, protections. So it'll offer protections. It'll work with farmers, um, to help certain species, um, all sorts of species, but birds included that are maybe threatened or endangered that could be directly affected by our agricultural practices. And there are the subsidies for crop rotation. So, I mean, one really good thing is crop rotation and, and then like leaving certain crops just a year to say like, okay, well now wildlife can come and pick at it if they want to in between our growth. So, um, yeah, I would, I would encourage everybody to learn a little bit more and appreciate the farm bill for, for what it does do for wildlife. But yes, if you can support a farm that is doing its best to grow a variety of different things, that is just going to be better for our ecosystem in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So obviously you have a passion for birds. I want to ask you, what, what is this? Why birds? There's so many, you know, we've talked about a few different species of animals, cats and bears and all that, but tell us about your love for birds and why birds are so important. Well, you know, I, I didn't know I loved birds until I took ornithology. I think I have a general love for all creatures um, and fascination. Um, but I took ornithology and it was like, it was like a world opened up to me to, to these beautiful and interesting creatures that are actually very easy to find if you know where to go and you know to open your eyes to look for them. So I almost think of it as like, um, you know, when you get a car, like you got a new car and then all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere. Like you never noticed your model of car before in the same way. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, there's so many Priuses around. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of like it is with birds. Like if someone doesn't point out to you and be like, that's a different type of bird, you never really know. And then they're all birds, but there's just such variety and birds are so smart. They're fascinating. I mean, we can do a whole nother interview. If you like, if you just want to talk about the cool things birds do, because <laughs> It is so cool. So yeah, I, um, you know, I, I, I am a bird watcher and I go and I, I try to see as many birds as I can. It's like, I have a little collection of, okay, I've seen this species. I would really like to see this one. Um, I'm not much of a chaser. Uh, so some people like follow birds and to the extent where they're like, I'm going to go across the country because it's where yeah. bird showed up. Um, one, my finances don't really, really help me to pick up and do that. But like, let's say snowy owls. Sometimes there are years that snowy owls make their way further down south at more, more abundantly. I'm, I'm going to schedule a trip to go and make sure I get to see a snowy owl because how cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and running, I don't know, you, you should, um, I recommend this for most people doing endurance sports to learn some bird calls because in the longest runs or bike rides, it can get monotonous and you're just like, what? I have, I have two more hours of this to go. I'm bored already. Um, but for me, I listen for birds and I'm like, oh, there's Northern Bob, Bob White, indigo bunting, Eastern Meadowlark. You know, like I'm just, it helps. It helps pass the time. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I don't, I wish I knew the bird calls better. I will say as like a recent bird mama, I'm just fascinated by their like social structure and their hierarchy. And, um, you know, as we're watching the chickens and the songbirds, the amount of phrases we have in our language that are directly related to birds just astounds me. And I'm a linguist is what, you know, I studied languages. And so having that in our language shows me that we, we evolved with birds. Like we wouldn't have all these, you know, birds of a feather and bird brained and packing order and, you know, flying the coop, all these things that we say, we wouldn't have that if we didn't have that close relationship with birds. Can you highlight maybe, I know you have probably so many interesting facts, but highlight one of them for us, like blow our minds with a little birdie 
thing that they oh do. Oh my gosh. Um, well, I think it's a, it's a very common misunderstanding that like birds are like completely monogamous and like the best, best mates ever. Um, some <laughs> are, some are really stellar, but you know, life has to go on. They don't, they don't mourn, you know, for an extended period of time. But like one of my favorite things is, um, the, so monochromatic, you know, the birds look alike for males and females. Those dads are usually better caretakers or helpers of protecting their young and the more stark differences, like the poor Northern Cardinal, those mm-hmm. dads are kind of garbage. Not that I want anyone to hate on them or anything, but it's just like in their nature, like they are, they are there to be flashy and to spread their genes and they are not incredibly helpful. So I think, I think like, not that I want people to be like, oh, well, birds are jerks. But I mean, I think they're just like some really fascinating misconceptions. And, and if I can continue to answer the question, why? Like, I love working with kids. Mm-hmm. Kids are scientists. Their curiosity is is that of a scientist. And birds are this amazing visual visual with all sorts of different opportunities for observation and questioning. And it's I I personally think there's no better organism to help facilitate the spark of the sciences than our feathered friends. Yeah. It's, it's so cool to get to know them, like in that uh, monogamous misconception. I know I used to have that. And um, when I lived in Edinburgh, I'd see the ducks going down the river all the time. And so I Googled it because you're like, oh, you know, the Drake and them, all oh, they match up. And then I learned about flight rape. And I was like, oh, ducks, what? <laughs> like, y'all are getting up to some stuff. Like, <laughs> I felt a little bit bad for the female ducks after that. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, and that's, of course, not across the Boards. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think like um, morning doves are delightful little dads. Um, birds of prey are fabulous um, in terms of their care for their young. But there are just so many different little things. Um, can I tell you one more fun fact? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's super fun. Um, so one of my favorite birds is the chickadee, just because I mean I am a pretty pretty compact short person. So I appreciate small but spunky creatures and chickadees certainly are. Um, but they have that call, like so across chickadees, they're different species, but they all they do a little chickadee dee 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 dee. Um, a couple of things about their their alarm call, which their chickadee dee dee is usually an alarm call, is that the more D's that they add to their chickadee dee dee. It's kind of like telling you, like, this is a threat, a, more of a threat or mm-hmm. more of an aggravation. So, like, they keep going, like, they're they're seriously ticked off about something versus, like, a little one. Maybe it's just like, oh, that's annoying. I don't like that. Let's go away. And more than 50 species of animal, not just birds, animals recognize the chickadee dee 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 as there is potential danger around. So, it is wow. such... It, it they are such a cool like little indicator and you know just how ecosystems and organisms evolve together that like they're like oh when I hear that sound something dangerous is around and to me that's just fascinating interspecies communication that is really cool yeah I'll definitely have to listen out for the chickadee because that is one of the ones that we grow up learning it's an easier uh, call to hear that and morning doves I'm pretty good at spotting those and crows but they're so cool I love talking to the birds like a lot of people hate hate crows because they can I, they can be a little bit aggressive if you're you know nasty to them but I had a crow this year that every single morning it would start squawking so I would say hi to it and I felt like we had a little relationship in it <laughs> well and it remember crows remember faces mm-hmm. there is a lot of great great research done on like crows remember if you're mean to them they will be mean to you mm-hmm. and if you're nice to them they will sometimes bring you gifts like they are just fascinating i think the crow brought us pizza my dog found pizza in our yard and there's no way like it's way too far away for someone no one would throw a piece of pizza i have no idea how a pizza ended up and we're vegan so it's not it was cheese pizza like it's i don't know so i'm just i said to my husband i I bet the crow brought it because i have no concept of how that happened so it will always be nice to the crows man what can we do as people to be better friends to the birds 
Thank you. And that this is the most important thing because it's so overwhelming and scary. So my the, number one, please, if you have a cat, consider keeping it indoors. I mean, that is just so simple and your cat can be happy indoors. I, and in this, if there is, if you get feedback, I will help provide the list of keeping your cat happy and enriched indoors because there's so much information. Um, in terms of buildings, even residentially, we can do our part to help prevent building collisions. So um, one simple thing is even if you do, if you have your blinds and you leave them kind of like, like, so they're open but slated, like if there is enough space for a bird to fit through, they will try to go through. But if you have lines about half an inch to an inch apart, then they can recognize that. And they're like, I'm not supposed to go through that window. Um, and then they're great and not expensive um, applicants. Like they're, and they're, they're, they're meant for design. They're meant to not be like tacky things you put on your windows, but they're kind of like grayed out. And it just helps. Like it helps you can apply them yourself and helps you to be able to, or helps the birds to be able to just see the window and recognize it's there. So um, I'll send you a link to that if you want. Definitely. To we need that because we get bird strikes on our back window. Uh, definitely certain times of the year, but I hear it and I'm like, oh, and sometimes and, we can find the bird afterwards, but it bothers me that they do that. Absolutely. And and so like, I know there, there was a movement of these silhouettes, like, oh, if you put a couple bird silhouettes and that's getting to the principle. But again, if the bird is small enough and it's, sees a space it thinks it can escape through, it'll go through. So unless you're like, silhouette, 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 all right. Um, <laughs> then it's, it's possibly not doing the trick. Um, and then I think the other thing that I would encourage people to do because it'll, it'll inspire you to learn more is to just go watch birds, right? Um, there is ebird.org is amazing for like information about like, people reporting birds. Citizen scientists are, are the greatest bank of data for researchers for birds. Like just go out, look out your window and see who you can identify. There are free apps out there. So I think, I think in terms of just action, I mean, there, there's a list of different little things we can do, but like learning the birds around you, and even then taking the step to start reporting them to eBird is going to be beneficial as we experience climate change, as, as we're trying to monitor all the things that humans are contributing. Um, so those are my number, the top three things. If I did have to add a fourth, if you let me, um, I don't know. I'm sure there are plenty of coffee drinkers that listen to your podcast, but Going for shade-grown coffee um, or bird-friendly coffee. You can look for specifically bird-friendly coffee. But that helps prevent deforestation, which is where min in many of the countries where our birds are migrating to. And they need a place to be able to perch and sleep and hunt. So shade-grown coffee. Oh, there definitely. We'll look for that for sure. Um, there is uh, a bird migration event coming up October 17th. Tell us about this. How can we watch birds? Tell us something that we need to be doing on the 17th. Absolutely. So, and I would, um, it, as soon as you can kind of just start warming yourself up and like figuring out who might be showing up to your backyard. Um, so there is a global big day in May and that's been happening for a couple of decades now. And it's worldwide, worldwide. People are going outside and for 24 hours trying to see as many birds as they can. And then they report that those sightings on eBird. So May, it's a date high in spring migration. And they've recently started um, launching the fall migration. So we can learn more about fall migration and help us learn more about effects of climate change. So top tips eBird does, um, and Cornell Lab of Ornithology has an online free, you can look at all the birds, um, and it'll show you where you should go in your region. The, they have an app that is also free that can help you identify, and they have great, very easy cues for learning birds. Um, and you don't need binoculars, but if you have them, a couple of tricks get used to your binoculars. So I would say practice spotting with your binoculars because birds are fast. And then Really take your time to look at the bird before you run to the computer or run to your field guide 
because you might not be able to have a chance to go back to it. It might already be gone. So I, I would encourage anyone who's trying to learn birth to take the time to look at it. What are its markings? How big is its bill? What size? We mostly know crows. We know the size of a crow, common bird, the size of a morning dove, very common bird. And say, like, is it smaller than or lesser than? And, like, all these little things are going to help you identify that bird. And then you just go out on the day of and see what you can see. Nice. So around the 17th, uh, we go out, we, we look and see what we can find and, and take note on ebird.org, correct? Yes. And there is an app for that as well. And it's very user-friendly. We will definitely link to all of that in the show notes and we'll be sure to alert our listeners to make sure they keep an eye out and see what we can find. I'm excited about it because there's definitely times where, you know, we kind of live in a semi-rural area where you'll be driving and there's just hundreds of birds across a field in the road and you just stop. And I'm just like, I wish I knew what I was looking at. You know what I mean? And so this is for us to start getting there. And I, I've found in my exploration with nature is understanding what you're seeing just gives you a much deeper appreciation for what's around you and makes you more likely to care about what's going on and, and care for it. Mm-hmm. And, and really you don't have to go far. I mean, especially, you know, there are a lot of movement movements for um, diversifying the city. So like certain tree planting, especially, you know, we want to reduce heat within the city and we want to make sure there's environmental justice and everyone has the same amount of shade, but those are just more opportunities to look for birds. And, and I know within, I live in the city of Richmond and there are so many birds in the city. And even if where you are, you don't feel like there are a lot of birds, that data is still important. Like, so getting started just to say like, you know what, I'm right here. And these are the birds that I see. And that is, that is important information to have. You want to know about the lack of birds as much as you want to know about the abundance of birds. But you can find birds. I yep. mean, it's no matter where you are. So if you're in the city, I encourage you to take your kiddo out. I, that's another thing. Take your kid out to do the, It's almost like Pokemon. <laughs> it's like you're, you got to collect them all. And, <laughs> and one more fun fact, a lot of birds, like, say their name. It's kind of like they're saying what we call, they got their names, of mm-hmm. course, because they're like, oh, we think this sounds like this. And so then we named the bird. But um, a lot of birds will like, like the Eastern Toey will say, as it's called, Toey, Toey. And then that's fun to teach kids too. They're really good at mnemonics. Okay. Mm-hmm. I will go on forever. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, yeah, it, I just, I mean, birds are amazing. Think about your interactions. I, I used to live somewhere near the coast where there was um, seagulls and a lot of people don't like seagulls. They're quite, they can be aggressive, but it's usually because someone's being nasty to them. And I have seen someone swat at a seagull and I watched that seagull dive bomb that person three times and poop on his head. And I was like, well, I mean, you did kind of go after the seagull. So, and, and then, I mean, that's of course another classic, like food motivation situation. Uh, that's a lot of shin, but, <laughs> but you know, like, of course, like if you're at the beach and it's like, well, French fry, of course I'm going to go. It's, it's opportunistic. There is not an animal in the world that is not going to take the easy way out for food. It's why we go through fast food sometimes too. Mm-hmm. We're a lot like wildlife. Yeah, surprising that. I mean, (laughs) that's what we are. (laughs) Well, April, I really appreciate our chat about birds. I'm going to download the the eBird app right right away. I'm going to make sure we link up everything. I'm going to remind people of the 17th and just encourage everyone to get out there and and just look at the birds. And, you know, your understanding will come with observing them, I imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, April. Uh, have a great rest of the day and um, keep up with the birds and the training. I need to add uh, de- identifying birds while I train. My thing right now is trying to identify the uh, plants on the side of the road, like all the wild ones. So, oh, but they, And they don't move away. So that's right. really helpful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're still there. It, but it's, 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 it's like you said, you know, three, four five hours on the road. Lots of things that we can pay attention to. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, April. Bye.
ready to start bird watching. I've downloaded the eBird app where you can record what you see, but as someone who doesn't know much about birds, the Merlin Bird ID app, both put out by Cornell Lab, has been the one I've been using the most. Make sure to download both and follow the links in our show notes for more information about the October big day happening October 17th and 18th. Learning more about what's around me, what's on my front step, always reminds me of this Richard Louf quote. We cannot protect something we do not love. We cannot love what we do not know. And we cannot know what we do not see and touch and hear. I hope that learning more about birds we see every day or every migration season will inspire more people to protect them and make choices that do not harm them. If you like this content, please spread the word by sharing with your friends and family. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your pods. And leave us a comment on social media. Any contributions through our Patreon account are greatly appreciated. And you'll find a full list of our expenses there if you're interested in how much it costs to put something like this on. The Eco Interviews is a true passion project of mine, and I feel honored to be able to connect with these people. I'd love to connect with you too, so that we can all channel our energy into creating a world where everyone can thrive, not just survive.